We pick up in uh, Judges chapter 18, obviously, if this is your first time, we've just been walking verse by verse, sometimes chapter by chapter. That's what we do. We walk through God's word, and so I hope that uh, though we are nearing the end of Judges, my prayer is that uh, this morning you hear from, from God and, and see how the, the God of the Old Testament translates to the God of the New Testament, which translates to we get to worship the God of creation even today in 2020. For. But I want to take a step back and think about in 2017, some of y'all have heard bits and pieces of my story. Uh, maybe we've been in a community group or maybe you've just heard me talk as we got ready to plant. Uh, but in 2017, my family and I, we stepped away from everything that we knew, everything that was comfortable for us. Uh, at that point, we had been living back in my hometown in Eastland, been serving there at a church for seven years in a Christian retreat center. Uh, and so very comfortable, just built a, our forever home, which that's a mistake. Never call anything your forever anything. Um, and so we had just moved into to that forever home. And uh, everything we knew in 2017 to be comfortable, God said, hey, I'm going to make you uncomfortable. And we picked up and we moved here to Alito. It was the first time in my life where I stepped away from ministry. We've been married 17 years this year. Um, and I've been in full-time vocational ministry now for 18 of those years, and this was the first time that I found myself not working in some type of ministry. Christian Retreat Center, uh, uh, working alongside as a student minister, as a family pastor, associate pastor. Uh, and so 2017 was a, a big transition for us, and as I journeyed into 2018, I thought everything was great. I thought I had it all kind of figured out. Uh, you know, that young 30-year-old who, who just, man, I've got life figured out. We had three precious kids. We now live in a, the affluency of Alito and, and all of this type of stuff. And it was like 2018 happened, uh, or, or we went into 2018, and God just started slowly ripping Band-Aids off, right? You know, like your kid comes to you, and they're like, hey, I need help getting this Band-Aid off. And you're like, well, the best thing to do is rip it off. And uh, they're like, no, 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 pull it. And I, I was like in that transition of my life and ministry and work and, and what is God doing? And I was saying, God, just please don't rip it off. And he's like, no, I think I need to rip this off. And, and there was a lot of things that I had to work through because I had come to believe that what I did, what I did in life defined me. All I knew was some type of ministerial work, pastoral Work. My value and worth was actually found in the things that I could do or achieve, and I was relentless in pursuing the approval of man. Now, by God's grace, he, he took me out of all of that mess and that huge life transition, if you will, and he placed me in the middle of a community of brothers and sisters who loved me and helped care for me and our marriage and show me true gospel centrality and what does that even mean? What is the gospel in the sense of how can it... I mean, guys, I've been teaching this for years. I mean, Nick was one of my... I was a student pastor. Nick, who works here at this church, I, I was his youth pastor. Served on staff with his dad. Like I had preached, I had taught the gospel. I, I knew the implications of what it meant to live for Jesus. I could encourage people to do it. But when it came to me personally in my own life, I was so crippled by the fear of man that I would choose to, to work for their approval than to know that I was approved by God in all of that. And so this, this new community, as we stepped out of that season, helped me see value and dignity and worth was not in what I did. 
but in whose I was. It was in the Father, Son, and Spirit, what he had done to me and for me. No matter what I could do for him didn't really matter. What mattered is whose I was. And man, I remember just like, I think it probably took a, a good few months for me to sit in that and to think, how is the gospel good news to me? I tell people it's good news all the time, but I was caught up in this, this fear of man and working for approval and what I did to find me, not whose I was. And three things I learned in that journey. I feel like I'm, I, I don't think I'll ever write a book, but I love going back to my journals and, and just kind of like seeing how God has shaped and reshaped and oriented my life and then reoriented me and disoriented me and all of these things. Three things that as I, I reflect on that season of really just chaos, a season of, of uncertainty, a season of just cloudiness of God, what are you doing in my life? I mean, I was selling irrigation. Like I, everything I knew, so you knew, was, was ministry. I worked in the vocationally for my dad doing construction and stuff, but this was the first time that when somebody said, what do you do? I did not have a, a pastoral or a ministerial like, oh yeah, I'm a youth pastor. Or I'm an associate pastor. I'm a family pastor. I'm the pastor. And this was the first time I found myself like, some of y'all knew me back then, and, and we moved here to plant a church, and I thought it was going to happen a lot sooner, but I remember like word vomiting on people. You know, Trent, let's just say Trent met me at CrossFit, and he said, hey, what do you do? And I'm like, oh, well, you know, I sell irrigation, but I'm really here to like plant this church, and I, I you know, I'm, I stepped away from, and I found myself like justifying everything. Like, why couldn't I just be, hey, my name's Matt, I, I work at Longhorn Irrigation. Like, what, what was not enough about that for me? had to like justify everything I did. And three things that I learned was this. I had learned to live with my idols. I didn't know how much my identity was actually wrapped up in what I did or didn't do. Meaning when I did things for God and there were good results, I was on cloud nine. Ministry and life was great. When people praised me for my giftings or talents or because of the things that I did, man, I worshiped their approval more than the God I was proclaiming. And I learned to live with the idol of approval. Now, I don't know if this resonates with you. I, I'm guessing in a room this size, there's somebody in here, if not all of us, wrestle with some type of approval. I just want my parents' approval. I just want my boss to recognize me. I just want my teachers to see how much I do I just want my spouse to see and recognize what I do. You would seek their approval more than you being okay with being a child of God. And that was me. I learned to live with the idol of approval. And let me tell you, when I didn't receive that approval from my wife, from my family, or from people, I felt worthless. Like nothing I was doing would ever measure up. And instead of learning to, to die to myself, instead of learning to crucify the idols of my heart, which led to fear of man, what would I do? I'd work harder. I just did more. I just served longer. I had learned to live with my idols, not crucify them. So when I didn't get that approval, man, I just worked harder, relentless at what I did. 
I had learned to live. And the second thing I learned in that season was that when you learn to live with your idols, you get really good at learning to justify your idols. I was good at this. I could justify living with my idols. I did things for the sake of the gospel. I'm a minister. Things I did, I did for the sake of the gospel because I was so fearful of losing people's approval or not measuring up to some, um, you know, whatever I thought people perceived for ministers. Like I, I would always be fearful that I didn't measure up to them in their eyes. So I justified my idols by working harder. I served longer because if I don't, then who's going to do it? And if I do it, then I'm going to be seen and I'm going to be noticed. And I would say things like, man, I'm called to this, to suffer for the sake of the gospel. I'll rest one day. I'll be real with the people closest to me when I feel better about where I'm at. But for now, I'm called to this. And probably the phrase I used the most to justify my need for approval and my fear of man was this. Hey, it's just a season. It's just for a season. Family, a season comes and goes. In Texas, it's a little wonky, but it's still a season will come and go. I didn't just have a busy season of life. I actually chose to bow down to those idols, and I chose a chaotic lifestyle. I was too scared to let people down. I was too scared to say no. I was too scared that I wouldn't measure up. So it wasn't just a season. It was a lifestyle. I wonder how many of us say things like, man, it's just a busy season. And you look up six months, eight months, a year. You're, you're, you're carrying the burden of taking your children from one thing to the next. And, and every time we see each other in community, we just say things like, man, it's just a busy season or I, I, I'm, just, I'm just all in and I've got to do this for my, for my kids or for work. It's just a busy season. And man, you wake up one day and it's been six years. And it's no longer a busy season. It is a chaotic lifestyle that you have invited in and chances are if you're like me it's because you're worshiping an idol you can't say no because if you say no you're not going to get the promotion you're not going to do this somebody's going to disapprove of you you're never going to measure up and that, that was me I learned to justify living with my idols convincing myself it was just a season and of course all of this justification came at the cost of something I was a terrible husband for my bride in the ministry, a terrible husband for my bride. I wasn't present with the people around me. Used people, circumstances to further ministry. And over time, the third thing I had to learn was this. I had to let those idols, or the third thing I learned to do was this. I had let those idols become my new identity. Therefore, what I did defined me. I was a leader, a pastor, a good communicator, like these were good things. I wanted to be known for being good at them, but my soul was as restless as ever. And here's why. God wasn't enough for me. Just the simple truth. God wasn't enough for me. I needed, in my heart, I believed, I needed more than I thought he could do for me or do to me. I learned to live with my idols. I became very good at justifying them. And over time, I let my idols define who I was the idol of approval and fear of man is what drove my every move. Family, none of these things 
idols of control, fear of man, success. None of these things or ideas or ways of life were ever meant to define me or you. Like by God's grace, the journey the Lord set me on, it helped me see that my identity is not what I do or how good I do or how bad I do it. It's not rooted, I love you, but my identity is not rooted in whether or not you approve of me. It's not rooted in anything except what Jesus has done to me and for me, period. Your circumstances do not define you. The label that society has put on you is not what defines you. I, you, if you are a believer this morning or a child of God, and we've learned that there's so much freedom in Jesus. Like the spirit in that, that season for me broke all sorts of chains that I didn't even know were there. And in all of my rebellion, my idol-worshiping heart, and all of my selfishness, all of my running from God, God never stopped moving towards me. Judges has been a hard book. I promise I'm not preaching a long, a very long, I got to catch a flight, so I, I can't preach that long. So I, but it was a long introduction because I want you to, to see, like as I've worked through Judges, I don't remember what week we're on, but we only have three left after this. It's been a hard book. Some of y'all have even joked with me like, bro, where are you going to go with the text this week? Like, how are you going to, to preach this? How are you going to, like, what does this even mean? I don't know what I'm reading. What does this mean? Lots of dark things, lots of terrible leaders, lots of tension within God's faithful love and man's rebellion. But this week, as I was reading, and I just was reminded, as I studied his word, I couldn't help but view it as such a beautiful book. Because in all of the mess, I was reminded of my own story. Because God never stopped moving towards his people. The overwhelming message, you've heard me say over and over again, that we keep coming back to is God's faithful. We are not. The idols of our heart will always overpromise and they will always underdeliver. God has never broke his promise and he always desires to deliver you from the idols of your heart. And yet through it all, you and I, our idol-worshiping hearts, our rebellion, our selfishness, our running from, God still has been moving towards us through his text. And last week we saw the, the tragedy of man-made religion. As Pastor Ryan was over here, we saw that, that this man-made religion, it reduces God. And for them, for the, the people of, the, of Judges, what we're seeing, the Israelites, it was actually man-made images, literal Idols, And for us, the idols may not be this, this gold or bronze monkey or this, this thing that we set on the shelf, but in the hearts of each of us, there are idols that we pursue and chase and run after. And for them, it was literal idols and God-made images. But there's areas of our life where each one of us have grown complacent with the things in the world around us. Like when Jesus is not the king of the heart, of your heart. When Jesus is not enough for you, when he wasn't enough for me, you're always going to be restless. You're always going to be searching for that security that you want, that control that you want. You're always going to be looking for that next step to take a better step to, to better yourself, that approval you're always going to be restless because you're searching for an identity outside of the one who actually gave you your name. 
who calls you by name, the father of lies, actually is really good at his job. Because it's in those moments where Jesus doesn't seem to be enough, we will take things into our own hands, and that's what we see in our text I'm not going to go verse by verse in this. It's kind of a simple story. It concludes uh, Micah's journey from last week, but it lays out clearly that Yahweh was not enough for them. And when that's the case, similar to my own story, probably I'm assuming many of your stories in the room this morning, you will learn to live with your idols. In those days, there was no king in Israel. So we see that in the text, but we know that that's not true, right? In those days, they were convinced that there was no king in those days, but I believe that they knew that that wasn't true. Yahweh, over and over again, has provided for them, generation after generation, the one true king, has been very clear along the way. But how these people, the Israelites, the tribe of Dan in particular, chose to live their lives said otherwise. We see the scripture says the Danite tribe was what? Was looking. Pursuing the idols of their heart, if you will. They were looking for something outside of what God had already promised. The father of lies had convinced them that God's promise wasn't enough. So what were they doing? They were looking. Think back to chapter 1. Kind of full circle here. That's why I love God's word. Chapter 1, the tribe of Benjamin, they failed to push out the Jebusites. The house of Joseph compromised and made covenants with the Canaanites. What was God's plan? Push them out. Don't live with your enemies. Don't become complacent. Don't make compromises. Push them out. This is the land I'm giving you. Manasseh failed to drive out their enemies. Ephraim allowed the Canaanites to live amongst them. Zebulun opted in for forced labor because they were convinced it was just going to make their life easier. These are all Israelite tribes I'm talking to you about. And it got worse for the people of Asher. Why? Because the Canaanites weren't just living among the Israelites in chapter 1. Instead, they were actually reigning over the Israelites, and then you see the tribe of Dan. Compromise after compromise, they became confined to the hill country. That's what we see. But it's not out of God abandoning them. No, that, it's out of a lie that they believed, out of disobedience, refusing to drive out their enemies, out of not trusting Yahweh, that he truly was enough. And so you see them looking. Well, where's our land? Well, if we would have done what God asked us to do and been obedient, there's a good chance his faithful covenantal love and promises would be overflowing with grace and mercy in our lives. But we chose not to do that because Yahweh was not enough. So what happened? They were confined to the hill country. They lived nomadic lives. Ultimately, they lived among the idol-worshiping Canaanites, and as Keller says, like buried mines, these idols lie dormant in Judges chapter 1, ready to explode in the spiritual lives of God's people. They learn to live with their idols. And they're restless. So we see that they're looking. What idols are you learning to live with today? What is it in your life that you're you're willing to, to compromise a little bit. Those half-truths. What idol in your life are you learning to live with? Because when you live with those idols and they're left unchecked, you have an idolatrous view of God. And it's then, just like myself and just like we see here, you get really good at learning to justify your idols. 
you see, they knew where they were supposed to live. God had, had already provided them. He had already made this covenant with them, this promise. But instead, as you see in the scripture, again, I'm not going verse by verse. You, we read the scripture, but instead we see that they stop at Micah's house from last week with his shrines and his idols. And they ask Micah, his hired Levite priest. So Micah had hired this priest. Like, hey, can you just be my priest? I'll consecrate you. You can live with me. Be one of my sons, one of my heirs, and you can just, you know, I've got these little carved images and this God on this shelf. And, and I, also there's Yahweh, but, you know, I have all of these other little trinkets and things just in case God's not enough. You're welcome to be my priest. And so the tribe... They ask Micah's hired Levite priest if their expedition for this new land, away from the land that God had already provided, would be blessed. But an interesting note here, they asked the Levite priest this, please inquire of God. Well, right there, I don't remember what verse it is, maybe five or six. Please inquire of God, not Yahweh, not the personal covenant-keeping God, just God. No personal attachment here. No, he is Yahweh. No faithful covenantal love. They just ask this man, hey, can you inquire of God for us to determine if we will have a successful journey? Can you justify this for us, please, Levite priest? Can you, can you just help me make sure, like, I, can you give me some assurance here that I'm doing okay? Not Yahweh, just God. And this pagan Levite, this hired hand, this hired priest, committed to false gods, assures them this favorable outcome in verses 6 to 10, which any reasonable person would make this same claim. Like they're going after a land controlled by what the text says, controlled by people who are quiet and unsuspecting. So this tribe comes to this hired Levite priest who's worshiping all sorts of different gods and apparently Yahweh, and they ask for his blessing like, hey, can you just pray to your God, to, to God, not Yahweh, can you pray to God and let us know if our journey, like, are we going to be able to take this land? Um, and of course, the Levite's like, oh yeah, that, that land, that is beautiful land, not yours, but that land, yeah, they're full of quiet people, unsuspecting. You're out in the middle of nowhere. It's almost like this guarantee. So of course he's like, yeah, 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 I'll, I'll pray. He does his thing. And they set out with no real need of reliance on God. They can do this in their own strength. And they, so they settle for a God of the land and set out to take the land. Idols are left unchecked. More than obeying and trusting Yahweh, they want security they want comfort, and they want control. God has said, here's the land. It's not enough for us, God. What we really want is security, a place where we can grow our crops and comfort and control. And when idols are left unchecked, you learn to justify everything. Look with me at verse 14. The five men who had gone to scout out the land of Laish told their brothers, did you, like the, the scouts that went ahead, like come to the leaders and say, hey, did you know that there's an ephod? There's household gods in a carved image in a silver idol in these houses? Like again, I want you to just see the, the, the yield here that God is like putting things in front of them. Like, hey, you, you know that 
it's not just Yahweh he's praying to. It's all of these other things too. Check this out. What do they say? Now think about what you should do. These spies come to him, the leaders, and say, you know this, think about what you should do. A few weeks ago I told you, do the next right thing. What is the next right thing here? Oh man, you're right. We, we, are, we are bowing down to the idol of comfort and security and run back to Yahweh. Like that's the next right thing, but not for them. It says, now think about what you should do. They knew what they should do. What they do? They justified the idols of their heart. Well, we asked God if he would be with us and this pagan Levite priest said he would be. Like we prayed about it. And we know it's not okay to worship other gods. Like I, I just imagine them thinking, well, of course it's not okay to worship other gods, but surely this is gonna be all right. Like God knows my heart. He knows that I didn't mean that, but I, you know, surely this is gonna be okay. Well, we know that God wants us to be successful. He's told us these promises. I mean, we are his chosen people, so surely this is what God wants for us. They go to the house of Micah, who himself has justified his entire idolatry as well. Last week in chapter 17, this man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and household idols and he installed one of his sons to be his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever seemed right to him. They justified everything. And the chapter concludes with this in 17. Then Micah said, now I know what boldness here. Now I know that the Lord will be good to me because a Levite has become my priest. What assurance does he have in his disobedience to God? And so now the tribe of Dan, they entice Micah's self-appointed priest with their justification. There's so much, I mean, it's like five sermons here, but there's so much justification happening right here. They say this, come with us. They entice this man who's praying to God and other things. Come with us. Be a father and a priest to us. Is it better for you to be a priest for the house of one person or for you to be a priest for a tribe and family in Israel? They convince his Levite priest to go with him. They take all of Micah's shrines, his ephod, all the household idols, a carved image, and they head out. Why? Because this Levite priest, who's not walking with the Lord, man, self-appointed priest, says, yeah, your journey's going to be okay because he knows they're living in security and it's an easy people to attack. And so they take the Levite priest and say, don't you, they dangle this in front of him justify this. Hey, don't you want to be a priest to a nation and not just one family? Like, come, come with us. And if the priest agrees, then of course the tribe of Dan has justified yet again. Well, even the priest is coming with us. So Micah justified his actions. And here's where that leads. You took the gods. As you, as you follow along, he chases after them and is like, wait a second. Stop. You, you took the gods I made. You took my priest and you went away. What else do I have now? Micah justified, learned to live with his idols. He learned to justify his idols. And look where that left him. He lost everything that his idols had promised him. He built up his religious life. This, I've got it all covered 
He made idols, a shrine, an ephod, and he even made a priest for himself. Everything he trusted in was now gone. Micah justified. What about the priest? Well, the priest justified his actions. A man who began, now track with me on this. You can go through this and see. A man who began as a Levite in Bethlehem of Judah, right in the center of God's plan for his people, it wasn't enough, so he moved to the hill country. And this man, who ended up as the priest, he ends up in Laish, outside of the land that God had given over to his people, working for a tribe which is so interesting. Revelation, and I don't remember where it's at. I think it's Revelation 7. The only tribe not mentioned from Judges is the tribe of Dan, who this story is about. So this priest has justified all of his actions, and he's now working for a tribe that is actually never going to reach heaven. He's justified everything in his own eyes. He has achieved everything according to societal norms. Like he has worked his way up and now this entire tribe of God's chosen people, they want him. And so what does he do? Keller says, this is a hollow worship which knows only the God of self-promotion. Meaning everything that this priest has trusted in is hollow and meaningless and will soon be gone. The entire tribe is justified. Micah has justified and this priest has justified. And as we learn to live with our idols, we begin to justify them. Eventually, I'll close with this, we end up letting those idols define us. Keller goes on and he says, in the end, self-made religion will always disappoint. Whatever we make into our God, money, these are the idols, power, relationships, or even a reduced man-made version of the biblical God will not deliver. A person who makes a career, their God will eventually find their route to blessing blocked by someone who is too strong, who's too able, too well-connected, too lucky for them. The person who makes their image their God will find a time, an enemy too strong for them to hang on to their youth and good looks Ultimately, death removes all the false gods that we look to for blessing. Micah was blessed in that he discovered emptiness of his God before he died, when it was not too late. You see, bottom line is this. Every one of us in this room is a worshiper. We weren't created to worship. We were created worshiping. So the question for you this morning, when you hear about these idols and, and how we learn to live with them, how we learn to justify them, and then ultimately how these things, the pursuit of these things, which can be good things, but if they control you and they own your heart, the question you have to ask is this, who or what is the thing you look to for ultimate meaning and purpose and blessing. Who or what is the thing you look to for ultimate meaning and purpose and blessing? Because whatever or whoever it is, is what is going to define you. And man, I lived that life. It's restless. It's easy to justify things. Well, I did this, you know, it's just a season. And all the things that I talked about in my own story, you can see this throughout the story of Judges, particularly here in chapter 18. Like you could go back and read this and think, oh yeah, they learned to live with their idols. They learned to justify their idols. And ultimately, that's what defined them. 
And it defines the tribe of Dan right out of the blessing in Revelation, I think it's 7. The idols of our heart will leave us questioning just like Micah did. Hey, you took my God. What else do I have? I say this often. We know a better way. And the better way has a name, and his name is Jesus. And there's only one, one God who will never be taken away from us. Like the tribe of Dan and Micah and the Levite priest we see, and I have attempted to find my identity in everything but the way, in everything but Jesus. I, I had to learn on my own that if I know Jesus is all I have, then that is the place I discovered he is eternally all I will ever need. If that's all I have, give me Jesus, because that's all I will ever eternally need. And that's the freedom that Jesus offers. That's the promise when he says, come to me, all who are heavy laden and burdened, I will give you rest. It's a promise. Heavy laden and burdened rest could be physically, like you're that. Could be emotionally, like I was. Could be dealing with all the anxiety of just like, am I ever going to measure up? And he says, stop. You do measure up because I gave you life. And so as the story concludes, they go on. You can see that. They kill the people of Laish. They name the city Dan. They set up the carved image for themselves. And interestingly enough, Jonathan, son of Gershom, son of Moses, ancestors of Moses, the great exodus. I mean, we're talking about Moses. Generation, generation, the third generation. His sons were priests for the Danite tribe until the time of the exile from the land. So what did they do? They set up for themselves Micah's carved image that he made, and it was there as long as the house of God was in Shiloh. Ancestors of Moses. There is no one related to God through your family tree. Simply put, by Keller, he says there, God has no grandchildren. So do you personally, individually know God? I can't answer that question for you. Do you know God? I'm not asking about your family tree. I mean, this is Moses's grandson, walked away from the Lord. Don Carson, commentary, uh, famously said this, one generation knows the gospel, the next assumes it, and then the third loses it. Nowhere is this better seen in the scripture than in Moses' family. Not asking about your grandmother's faith, not asking about are you a good person, I'm asking do you, do you know Jesus this morning? Father, I pray that you would stir in our hearts. Lord, I pray if there's somebody here that is, is just wrestling with who you are, who they are, God, would you just make it ever so clear and draw near to those this morning? I believe there is somebody here that needs to taste and see of your goodness for the first time. Would you draw them to yourself? They don't have to measure up. 
They don't have to be approved by anybody besides just coming to you and saying, God, I need you. And would you, in a real, beautiful, sweet, and if it needs to be tough and tender at the same time, would you just draw near to that person?